UX Podcast Episode 206. You're listening to UX Podcast coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, Christopher McCann and James Roy Lawson. With listeners in 182 countries from Croatia to Chile. And today we're going to be talking to Melissa Perry. Melissa is the founder and CEO of Product Prod, Products Labs. She is also a product management coach and consultant who has trained organizations and teams across the world in product management. She's been a guest on UX Podcast twice before. Episode 120, Product Management and UX, and episode 139, Education and Leadership. But now Melissa is also an author with her book, Escaping the Build Trap, being released in the autumn of 2018. When we talked to you um, the first time, Melissa, three years ago, um, we were, we were, um, you decided on the title of the book roughly as The Build Trap, but you were testing variations. And I think the leading variation at the time was getting out of the build trap. In the end, it was escaping the build trap, which I actually like. I like the escaping there's a title in the end but tell us what is the build trap yeah the build trap is a scary place that companies get into and i I come to believe it's companies of all size get into it where all you're concentrating on is building more 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 features more things for customers ship it ship it ship it but we're not really stopping to look back at it and say hey how do those features or the things that we're actually shipping produce value for our customers or for a business? And are they actually hitting goals? Are we stopping to measure goals? Do we even have goals? Uh, and we see companies get stuck in this at all stages, right? From you know startup to growth stage to, uh, to enterprises. And to me, that's, that's how you damage your business, right? That's how you start um, having people work on things that are, are not important. So we wanna get everybody out of the bill trap. So that's why the book's called Escaping the Bill Trap so that they can really concentrate on what's most important, which is value. So value for your business and value for your customers. How do we ship things and build things that actually do those those two? In the book, at least in the first part of the book, I was really struck by, there was a lot of organizational issues you talked about. Um, you talked about uh, the build trap, uh, how you saw it. Um, and my the thing I had never really thought about from a product management perspective before was, the role of change management in an organization. Um, I saw a lot of that, what you were talking about, having, going going to value-based, um, looking at user value, um, and I had never really thought about it before. And tell us a little bit more of your thinking around the, the, the organizational the change agent uh, as a product management skill. Let me tell you a little bit to get there of how I started realizing that the build trap was more than just scrum teams, right? More than just like the developers, which I think is what people point their fingers on. They're like, the developers are not shipping fast enough, like ship more things, right? And we start to hold them accountable there. Uh, So I was working with teams uh, for a long time uh, when I, right after 2013, 2014, I I started my business and I had been teaching people how to experiment. So a lot of a lot of companies would call me. They'd say, "Hey, we just transitioned to Scrum. We have all these product owners. They need to be experimental, right? They need to learn lean startup things, and I need them to go get closer to customers and test with customers. Go teach them." So 
over the next uh, two years, I'd been partnering with these companies very closely, working with their teams, teaching all these product managers uh, and teams who've never done this before, how to build great products. So how do you talk to your customers? How do you really craft a great solution? How do you experiment? How do you get yourself out of thinking that you know what's best and out of your biases? And I do that and I'd look around and, and the teams would start doing really, really great, yet they weren't shipping awesome stuff and they were still getting yelled at by management. And I'm going, what's going on? Like, why can't these teams start like doing better things, right? What's holding them back? And I looked around the organization and I realized that the teams were just not set up to thrive. It was not just uh, a team's fault, it was the organization's fault. And that's where all this change management comes into play. Uh, if an organization has a bunch of um, you know, scrum teams and a bunch of product managers who are really awesome, it can completely stifle them by not having the right uh, leaders, the right strategy, the right organizational setup and the right policies in place to really support those teams. And, and that's what the book turned into. Uh, so I started writing it just thinking like, I'll explain how I do you know, experiments and how we do great product management. And um, over the years, I just realized it's so much more than that. And it really goes all the way back up to leadership. If leadership's not bought in, if leadership is not um, really understanding how to run a great product organization or, or interested in that, it kills everything. It, it has destroyed all the things. Uh, when I've worked with leaders who are very receptive to that and they want to learn and they want to support these teams and they want to do everything possible to create great value, they thrive. Everybody thrives. So I started shifting my focus towards what do leaders have to do and what do organizations have to do in order to set themselves up for success. And um, a lot about that has come down into uh, setting up a great strategy. So making sure that everybody's aligned top to bottom on what they're working on, uh, having teams aligned by value streams and having them structured in the right way so that every role as you go up the value stream has a different scope and has a different ambition for what they set in strategy uh, and everybody's aligned around the right things that they should be shipping. And it really comes down to like policies and goal setting and how we reward people. So, uh, and having the right people in the right roles, that, that's a huge part of it too. So um, I really got, so the thing that you're bringing up too is, uh, is about the value stream. So how do we organize people around value streams and, and why are they important? Uh, I think I have seen a lot of companies who go from, you know, into an agile mode. They're like, oh, okay, we're gonna adopt Scrum. It's usually Scrum. It's not Scrum's fault to do this, but it's usually Scrum. And when they start to organize in Scrum, they say, hey, okay, we've got all these people, let's just put them around every feature that we have out there. And they start putting them on components. And everybody's got dedicated to a feature. Now, that's not bad necessarily. We want people to be dedicated to a feature. We want them to think about how to grow it. What's bad is when we put people around those features and we don't connect it back to okay, why should we improve that feature? Like, what's it gonna do for the overall value stream? How's it gonna ship, um, how's it gonna produce more value for our customers? How's it gonna unblock that? Uh, and what happens is those people get dedicated to the features. We say, you are the product manager on payments and you shall always be the product manager on payments and you shall never leave payments. And when that happens, ever, like, yeah, yeah ever. you're trapped like, there forever. It's for another the rest trap. of your life, you're gonna be on payments. Yes. <laughs> you, you'd be like 80 years old and you're like, oh, oh. we have to get this workflow to be better. <laughs> um, they, and so that's, that's kind of like the message we send people is like, y y that's your thing. You got to take over payments. It's, it's the only thing you're ever going to be working on. Um, but we never say, hey, what if payments becomes good? 
right? Like what, what if there's nothing to improve on payments? Like where do these people go? And that's the concept of value streams. So a value stream is like looking at everything that we have to do to ship value to a user. So we usually start the user and we figure out what are their needs and their problems. And then what products and services do we currently have in our portfolio that solve them? What are new ones that we actually want to build to solve new problems that are arising there? Uh, and then we look at that portfolio and we say, what should we do to either build new things or enhance what we currently have to get to our goals and produce more value, both for our business and our products? And then we align people around that. So it might look like in a typical enterprise level organization, we'll have like a VP of product around that whole value stream. Then we'll have a, um, a director of product who would look over like a subset of related features that make a big push towards that value stream. And then we would have product managers around larger components of features that make a push for it. And only the things that really are important for it. So if we have um, you know, a goal to increase revenue, we wanna look at that value stream and say, what parts of that value stream are gonna help us increase revenue? We should only have people really improving that. We may have um, the director of product looking over the whole subset of features, but we may be actively only making pushes on a couple of them because the other ones are short, short up and fine. Uh, so that's where we want to get into value streams because if you lock people into components, two things happen in the organization. One, you end up with a million teams and you don't need a million teams. So uh, that if you have a bunch of scrum teams too, it increases the complexity of what you have to manage. And also a lot of people are just looking for work to do. So they fill up their backlogs and they start producing things, but they don't necessarily actually correlate to real value for the organization. So everybody's busy, but nobody's making a big concerted push. And it's usually because we just have too many people working on too many things. So instead, what we really need to do, and this goes back to strategy, is figure out like what's the most important thing we can do as an organization right now? How do we take um, our, the people that we have and put them around those things? So enterprises especially get into this trap because they're usually going through some kind of transformation where they already have 45,000 people in an organization and they're going, okay, I've got 45,000 people. I want to go on this digital transformation. That's, that's usually what they call it. And to me, digital transformations are just about, hey, instead of using services, we're going to use software to scale. How do I take 45,000 people and reorient them around a digital area? And the fact is, like, it takes more people to produce the same kind of value that you have with services than with software. Software is all about automating things. So you actually need less people to build great software. And it's better if you have less people because you'll be more strategic and you'll be more careful and you'll be more focused about what you actually do. But instead, we usually blow this up. So now we have a thousand scrum teams where we really need only like a hundred to make a really good push. And uh, managing that becomes incredibly complex. And then we lose track of what everybody's working on and we don't know how to optimize that portfolio. Um, and I've seen that over and over and over again as enterprises move into this type of working and as companies scale too fast. We scale ahead of our strategy rather than thinking about what do we need to do to get to the next level? But when you've so if you've when you've come in there and you've you've enlightened an organization um, to the, the the benefits of um, value streams contra um, component based organization, um, how how do they take that kind of how, how does that actual process work when when you've when you've come to that conclusion? So you look these are your value streams. This is how you need to be organized. That could be. I imagine that's difficult for a lot of organizations to, to, to eat. It is. Yeah. And it's not, it's usually uh, most of the organizations that I have worked with 
are receptive to it because they, they want to get that way. It's just a matter of timing, right? They don't want to blow everything up and move everybody immediately. So, um, and then also structure, right? I've worked with a lot of organizations where tech and business are still separate and they're trying to figure out how do they work together, but the reporting lines are, are separate. So we try to organize by value stream from a work perspective, but not necessarily like a people hierarchy perspective, which I think you can do. And that's that's what like Spotify tried to do with their squad model anyway. So it's, um, it's, a, it's complicated because usually organizations are not set up to just flip a switch and become a value stream org. So you need somebody to really own that change and you need a champion to own that change. Uh, and that's only gonna happen at the highest levels, right? You need somebody above there to be like, all right, this is how we're organizing. This is the goals that everybody's gonna have. These are how the VPs are now gonna work together so we're not siloed. This is the way that we go. So for companies that really wanna make this change, like it, it can't come from, I've seen a lot of a lot of enterprises like, you know, put somebody as a senior director at like a change as a change agent, but, and then it's like delegated from the VPs and the C-levels and they're like, go change things. That person's usually not empowered enough to make the changes that they need to happen because it's gotta go all the way top to bottom. It can't just be, hey, everybody director level and above, below is gonna change. It's, it's all, it's C-suite and below that has to change when you wanna make these things happen. So do you, do you see, do you think um, organizations that are um, you know, to growth-based organizations, um, do those have an easier time adopting value stream organizations compared to the corporates? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, so we work with, um, so since we last talked, uh, I've been doing a bunch of different things, but uh, we, we've got two sides to our business now and we're, we're growing uh, pretty rapidly. So we've got a lot more people than just me, which is really nice now. Uh, because I don't have to fly all over the place every day. So um, we've got the enterprise side where we, we're taking enterprise companies and they're moving into these digital transformations and they've got to set up product management. They've never done it before. So it's a lot about what we talked about with the change agent. On the other side, we're helping uh, growth stage companies scale. So the growth stage companies are usually, you know, around 10 million to we worked with up to 50 million. They're trying to scale super rapidly over the next three to four years to hit the like 150 million which is like prime for in, in ARR annual recurring revenue, which is prime for like an IPO. So that, that's usually what there is, or they'll get acquired, you know, something will happen there, exit. Um, now these companies are scaling really, really fast. And what we see with them is that usually as um, it, it, it is easier for them to make the change because they're smaller, first of all. Mm. And they usually have some more of a, they have more software DNA because they started off as a software company. Like they knew that software was their product so it is usually easier for them to make to change, but they still end up in the build trap. And that's because the people who uh, founded the company, so the founders will usually be great product people. And if they're getting to grow stage, they did something right, right? Otherwise they would have failed as a startup. So they were really good at like knowing their customers, they saw the market, they saw the need, they went out, they built a solid product and they sold it. And they got to that 10 to 20 million mark, which means that they're turning into a grow stage company. Now. That though requires a different strategy though than from getting startup to growth stage. So instead of going like hands-on and just executing, 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 getting something out, selling it, making sure it's the right thing. Now we're turning into how do we grow a portfolio of products and manage a lot of people, hundreds of people, right? In order to move this portfolio into the next phase in order to like really scale it rapidly. We've got traction. How do we exploit that? How do we move into new markets? How do we move into new geographies? How do we build new products and manage that portfolio? And what happens when they get stuck in the build trap there is they don't uh, realize that shift is happening. They don't realize they have to start with a new strategy 
and look at what's next and figure out how do I manage all of these things. And that's usually where they need to bring in somebody like a chief product officer to really manage their product portfolio and grow that. So they have to grow their teams, they have to grow, they have to grow their discipline, they have to grow their processes, they have to grow their products, they have to grow their strategy and they have to change that over. Now, they're almost all of these companies though I have seen um, are almost always organized by value streams by nature because their product line ends up being that value stream. And then when they stand up another one, they have another group working on it. So they're almost always organized by value streams there. It's the companies that don't have that software DNA in it. They usually split the um, technology teams away from the business. So the value stream is not connected. So they're not organized by value streams because those two things are not, have not traditionally been working in sync with each other. Yeah, I can see how that, that does. Yeah, you've got to have that initial DNA in those situations or you, um, mm-hmm. yeah, you're going to be, you get the the transform, transformational change barrier is going to be um, very very yeah. difficult to climb. With the growth stage companies too, like the the, the they get into the the build trap, right? It, it's all about strategy on that point. It's less about um, it's still about getting the right people. So uh, with a lot of the companies we work with, uh, the founder was there, and it's about getting the founder to realize they got to hire a chief product officer or become the chief product officer. Like, do you want to be a CEO or do you want to be a CPO? Uh, and it's a tough choice. It's a really like you know. Uh, personal choice for them. But if they don't, if they want to be the CEO, they got to hire a CPO. So they got to have somebody there or somebody has to become the CPO who was that in the organization. Um, And that person needs to take on that whole, how do we manage this portfolio and grow it so that the CEO can go out and do all the things that they have to do, like raising their money and running the business and, you know, looking at everything. Um, So that tends to be the thing that, um, that, inhibits the growth stage from scaling as much is having the right leaders, um, having the right people. A lot of times startups will get going by hiring like a smart, a lot of junior, like really smart people who are not actually experienced and they're good at getting things done. And as long as you have a strong strategy and a strong leader, that works fine. But as soon as you have that leader go off and have like a million other things to do, right? They lose track of the strategy. Now you need somebody dedicated to doing that, taking it to the next level, setting that, for those people. So you guys start bringing in levels of very experienced people who can help level up a junior team. And, and that's usually, uh, the growth stage usually gets stuck in the build trap because they're hiring tons of people, but they're not having a strategy to really support that. So that's why leadership is the most important thing to hire in those stages. How does, how does the communication of the strategy enter into that? I mean, it seems to me that, you know, if you just have a strategy is one thing, but if uh, I think in your book you talked about you know asking a number of different people in an organization you know what 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 how does this thing they're working on benefit the company and and they really couldn't answer that so to me I was that was a yeah. sort of a communication red flag right away uh, what sort of what yeah. sort of things do you do you see happening around that yeah so like the first thing I go in to figure out is there a strategy or not is I ask all the teams like what are you working on and why and then I, I map it out like we actually like draw we draw things and we show how that bubbles up. And a lot of times you'll see like, you've got in uh, in enterprises especially, uh, or even, but even growth stage, like I've seen this with 15 teams, everybody's working on something different and they have no goals and nobody knows why they're working on the things they're doing. And you also hear from people uh, on the teams going, you know, our leaders keep changing their minds like every five minutes, like we're not really sure what we're supposed to be working on. And it doesn't even matter if I start working on this because in a month they're gonna tell me to work on something different and I'm never gonna ship. So we get leaders who keep yelling at their teams that they need to ship more. And we got teams who can't ship more because they're changing course every month. So they never get like a chance to actually produce things. Uh, So 
that's telling me there is no strategy alignment. So it's one thing to have a strategy, it's another thing to deploy it. And you need to deploy it at the right levels. And this is a lot about what I talk about in the book because it's 99.9% it's .9 of companies are doing this wrong from what I've seen. Um, but you need to have like something that says, okay, at the highest level, here's our business goal. How does that manifest into what our product portfolio should be working on? What problems should we be solving? What should we be exploring at this level? And then what are the goals? What should the teams be working on, right? How do the teams figure out what features to improve, what features to create to actually get to those higher level needs, solve those problems for our customers? And that all translates back up into our revenue and business goals. So that's what a good strategy framework should do. It should tie everything together top to bottom. But usually uh, companies are missing that kind of, I call it the missing middle. Uh, they know that they have to hit revenue and the teams are doing a bunch of stuff but nobody's really connecting it to the business goals, to what the teams are doing. And that's where you need great product leaders to come in to look at that portfolio and say, hey, we should build this new product out. We should enter, enter the enterprise market, but to enter the enterprise market, we're gonna need to solve these new needs. They're gonna need integrations. They're gonna need this. This is how it manifests down into the teams, right? That's what product leaders do. They like say, okay, I know that these are our revenue targets. I know that this is where we're going as a company. I see the vision. This is how it manifests from a product perspective. Uh, and then they work with the people to build the roadmap and actually figure out what are the tangible things that we do to get there. Um, I guess I guess that's also where they have to be then the the the, the buffer or the or the protective shell against like sales. Yeah. Um, so yeah. so uh, you know because that's where the kind of push from sales will, sales will come and say okay this new area this new market mm -hmm. you know if we don't have this feature we won't land this contract we won't land yeah. that so the the product yep. the product level will get really bombarded from other parts of the organization. Yeah, like good product leaders know how to work with sales. Like all of our chief product officers, they're partnering with sales very closely. And what they're doing is they're commercializing the roadmaps. So they're going, okay, let me first figure out what the strategy is. Let me make the hypotheses on how we get there. Let's go do the research. Let's set the strategy. Let me get to the teams. Let me figure out what's possible. Okay, now I have a good idea of what our strategy looks like for the next year, quarter, whatever it is. Um, high level. I'm not talking about like what feature are you building tomorrow, but high level, these are the things that we think we're going to bring to market. Now let me go to sales and figure out how to result in revenue, right? And sales is responsible for taking each of those chunks and figuring out how can we sell it? Is there appetite? How much of a market is there? And they work together to figure out what are the financials for actually looking at that roadmap. So that's how you tie it back together. Without that, um, without that buffer, right? Without that leader, sales just goes and sells everything, right? They just like sell, 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 because they usually have goals for it. And then they turn the product and say, well, we already made those contracts, so you have to go build it. And it's true, you have to. So we do ask teams too, when we come into even to them, how much contract debt do you have? And uh, one- oh, Hold on, hold on, no. have... contract debt, you just said. Yep. Oh, I like that. Yep. Yeah. So just like tech debt, contract debt. So yeah. like how much contract debt do you have? How much are you committed to? And then we start comparing it. Um, we do like a lot of hands-on strategy work ourselves now too. So we, we, we compare it to their strategy and their vision and we say like, you know, 50% of this is you got to do it now, but you realize you, you just took yourselves out of the running for six months because it's actually not going towards your long-term vision. This is stuff that, you know, you just have to do to make a sale, but you're not going to be able to resell it to other people. So now you're becoming a custom software shop. And without somebody to really do that work, right, our, our CEO levels at these stages are, you know, they're off doing what they have to do, that they're, they're doing their job. So we're missing somebody who can really do that, who can partner with sales, who really can be that buffer, who can strategically get ahead of all this so that they don't feel like they have to go sell that. But isn't it sort of a common issue when you have investors involved and sales is very important? 
um, that you, oh, you yeah. need that. So you have investors saying, you know, it, even they might not explicitly say it, but there's a lot of pressure from from the economic side of things to actually sometimes make poor decisions. Yeah. So there are there and there's trade offs, right? And a good chief product officer knows that sometimes, sometimes we're going to have to make a trade off to keep ourselves alive in the short run right versus the long run. So sometimes we do have to make concessions, but they also know enough to push back so that you're not doing that every day, right? And that that's the that's the balance you have to weigh, especially at that stage of a company. And investors do care about sales. There's a lot of investors out there who only care about sales. Um, and I'm I'm really lucky that we're we're partnering with um, Insight Venture Partners uh, because they really believe in product. So we're kind of an extension of their team and we go into all their growth stage companies to to work with them on great product strategy because they know that without a product strategy and without product, right, sales can't sell anything. So we we combine those things. So we still optimize sales and there's a lot of sales operations that you can do work there to make your company grow. But without a great product strategy, sales has nothing to sell. And that's where you get that um, friction between sales and product, right? Sales is like, I'm gonna go sell things because you haven't told me what I can go sell. Like you haven't showed me what I can package. And when you bring in great product leaders, they're the ones that can bridge those things together. But it's always a, sales are always gonna be a thing. It's about getting ahead of it and making sure that sales has something to sell that's the right thing to sell. And when you point a, sale, a great sales team at a great product strategy and a great packaging strategy and you teach them like, this is a value proposition, this is what we're gonna go do, this is what we're building, they're excellent at selling it. It's when you don't have that connection that everything falls apart. I, I, I love the idea of the con contract debt and also that almost like you've got a, a budget that you can afford to kind of let so much of that kind of debt and let, let sales and contract work build up a little bit of stuff, but you have some kind of limit. And once it gets to that limit, then you can't let it go over because it will be all consuming mm -hmm. and everything will collapse. It's, yep. um, yeah, it's, it's, there's, there's certain bets are worth taking, but mm -hmm. not every bet. Yep, exactly. And it's, it's about trade-offs, right? And that, that's what product is all about. So if we take on this contract debt, what could we be building and how to, would that monetize in six months compared to this? Um, and sometimes it's gonna take longer to build some of the things that we wanna build that are very visionary and you know will move us to the next level. So we have to take on some contract debt in order to stem ourselves over to the next, to the next phase. So it's all about trade-offs and I, I think like really analyzing that and working together with the, having the company really think through that, right? From a strategic standpoint, that's what aligns everybody. And I think companies get into, you know, fights with each other between roles and stuff like that when they're not having those conversations together, when you're not bringing everybody to the table and talking about like, here's the reality of things. Here's, here's like, if we do this today versus tomorrow, like, and you're not keeping that, that line of communication open, even all the way down into the teams, right? That's, that's where everybody starts fighting. That's where teams are like, oh, our product people, they just give us things to build and they don't know what's going on. And like, we committed to this contract debt. Like th that's where a good strategy framework and good communication really opens that up is when you can explain the reasons why you do those trade-offs. That sounds like we're, as, as usual, Melissa, we learned so much when we're talking to you about this. Um, but I've got one final question I want to post to you that um, at the end of our, in our post interview chat back in episode 120, when we first talked to you, Per said he had another question he wanted to ask you and we didn't have time. So uh, we promised that we'd ask it next time. It was actually be the next, but one time. Um, so I'm going to ask it now. Um, in, your, in your bios on your, your, your descriptions of your history and past on your various websites, you, you say you started a company in Italy and learned about the wonderful world of bureaucracy and risotto. Now, 
Yes. What what does that mean? <laughs> so um, in 2013, I was in a startup accelerator called Tech Peaks in Italy. And the concept was great to me because, like, one, I didn't know any better, but two, they said, hey, we're going to just throw a bunch of people together, use Lean Startup, create companies. And I was like, I love Lean Startup. It'd be great. And then uh, little did I know that there's way more involved in creating a company. Now I do. But <laughs> we, um, so we, it was run by the Italian government. So that should tell you all about you need to know in bureaucracy of itself. <laughs> um, but yeah, we had, we had a lot of hurdles. Um, it was a really good way to kind of stifle innovation. Um, we had, you know, to go through so many hoops and there were things we could do and things we couldn't do. And, and uh, you kind of had to like get your, get your team together in two weeks and be committed to it. And uh, there was lots of rules about how you could spend the money. So bureaucracy, bureaucracy to, to a fault. Uh, but while I was there, that was frustrating for me too, because like coming from New York, uh, I worked with a lot of startups here who were great and it was just, you know, they trusted you to just go do things. So it was really nice. You had a lot of freedom. Um, well, the risotto part though, is while I was in Italy, we learned how to cook and that was really, really awesome. And I never liked risotto before. And I learned how to make great risotto from uh, the Italians we worked with who were very lovely people. And I learned a lot about how much really goes into making risotto. So in the US, like people just boil rice and like add some cheese into it. And they're like, risotto, great. And it turns into this like crappy, like rice mac and cheese thing that's going on. Um, which is terrible. And I, so we, uh, we, we learned how to make it. And I, I, we did, uh, we actually had like, there was only three or four Americans there. So we had like a, a night where we all made risotto together. And we went and we made like, we got the fresh porcini mushrooms down at the mm. market and we brought Ooh. them back and we oh. simmered them in the butter. Sounds and great. Like, oh. Yeah. And we like started putting the rice in and I realized like you, you have to like ladle the broth in and let it simmer and soak up and then, you know, ladle the next one. And it takes mm. like a good hour of like dedicated work to make a risotto. It's not something you put on and walk away. So I have a whole new appreciation for that food. Um, I absolutely love it now. And I, I'm very happy that I at least learned how to cook in Italy. Yeah, Risot risotto is a, is a work of art. Sounds it's, lovely, sounds lovely. It sounds lovely and it's, it's, it's a skill, that is definitely a skill for life. It is a, it is mm -hmm. a labor of love, I agree. Mm. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, Melissa, for, for joining us again today. Super, yes, it great was talking great. to you again. Thank you. The first thing I think about, or what, what, what I'm wondering about now after talking to Melissa is, is the build trap inevitable? I think so. I mean, that, it's not something you, because I mean, she's, I think if you reflect upon the title of, of Melissa's book as well, escaping the build trap. She doesn't say avoiding the build trap. Um, so, so I think I mean we didn't ask her directly, but the, um, the, you know, the title itself implies that you are already already there, and you know you are going to get there. Well, I think it also points out that you, there's a natural inclination for people to to act in this way. Because I reflected over that the name change we were talking about in the board, in the in the in the podcast is that it's that it's almost it's it's not like you said it's not avoiding it it's not making a conscious decision not to do this it's just it's going to happen regardless mm. um and time and time again when i was talking to her i'm like is this inevitable is this human nature um i know what i think about that but um uh, it, it kind of reminds me about any kind of of change you want to make to a business or on a personal level that you have to want to do it um and you have to see see that vision and push it through 
So a lot of it was change management I, I got out of it, or at least a lot of things she talked about. Mm. Now, I, th I, th I think the whole thing, I started thinking about whether um, the build trap was, was a product of time, that you, you always reached it after a certain amount of time. But then I thought, no, actually, it isn't that. And I thought, okay, is it a matter of scale? Do you always reach it you know, when you get to a certain scale? But it isn't that either, because we've got examples of, of, of companies that are both big and old that, that maybe aren't kind of constantly in the build trap. Not, not, not from the outside looking in, anyway. Um, but, but I think um, a lot of that is the kind of Wizard of Oz thing that you've got. Companies look like it's all working and it's hunkadory. I mean, me and you are consultants, so you've been on the inside, and Melissa too. You've been on the inside so many times, and and every organisation is is messed up in some way. I think I think it's also I think it's natural too. I mean, think about yourself when someone comes to you with mm. a with a with a with a problem. Your instinct initially is to is to come with solutions. I mean. And I think we're we're sort of hardwired for that. So I mean, I think a big part of it is slowing down, is saying instead of going in going into the the solution space, let's make sure we understand the problem space. Um, mm -hmm. I also start to think about user research. That's why user research doesn't get done the same way it should be because we're so quick to get into the the solution space. And to me, it's mm -hmm. really the same thing. And the in the build trap is just one one more extension, the next step to the solution space. Yeah, because we, we, as we mentioned when talking to Melissa, we, we as humans, we categorize. We want to create silos and categorize and, and slim things down because it's like the, it's, it's a survival instinct, I guess, isn't it? Like you, you, you make your world more contained so you can feel more comfortable with, with how complex and how, how, how much you understand it. Um, and it, even though I really, really like um, organizing your teams and organization by v value streams, I think value streams does it's a it's a additional cognitive burden on people in the organization because i think it's more abstract right is the value stream in i mean now i'm generalizing across all organizations but i i, I fear that value streams are more abstract which means it's not a natural state no. which means the build trap will happen again once key members of the team or the organization shift and move role or organization, then you will fall back into the building. I agree completely. I mean, first you have to answer the question is what is value? I mean, and that's mm. a, I mean, that's a philosophical as well as a, as an economic discussion. And people are not going to want to spend that much time on that because it's difficult and it's like you say, cognitive load and it's uncomfortable. So it's much more fun to sit around a conference table and start throwing out ideas of what the solution is going to be and then deciding on one very quickly and then running with it. I think that's mm. so. I think what you're saying is, to a large extent, this is human nature, or at least biology, yeah. anyway. Yeah, and I mean, to not to not end on a completely depressing note, <laughs> I think that's but that, that's fine. Um, what it means is though that don't try and avoid the build trap. What you need to do is be always looking out for it and always ready for it because it's going to come. So if, if, if you are actually in a position to, you've got the toolbox full of things that help you deal with getting out of the um, the 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 build trap then then it's it's going to be it's going to be all I right i agree i don't i don't think it, it's it's depressing at all i think it's how you would address any bias that uh, we we we've read numerous different books and and blog posts and say these are their bias but the fact of the matter is to actually avoid a bias is almost impossible the best you can do is realize that these biases exist and i think build in time to say am i being biased here a self-introspection, which I think is also really, really difficult and, and takes mental energy and people tend to avoid it. Yeah, and takes that little bit of, little bit, little bit of time. 
because you need space and time to reflect. Correct. Thank you for spending your time with us. As always, links and notes from this episode can be found on uxpodcast.com. If you want something to listen to next, our recommendation, of course, is episode 120, which was the very first chat we had with Melissa on UX Podcast back in February 2016. Remember to keep moving. And see you on the other side. Who's there? The user. The user who? Yep, we're at Microsoft. Oh.